0: If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. From Birds Canada, this is the Warblers. This is The Wake-Up Call, a special podcast series from The Warblers by Birds Canada. I'm Andrea Gress. Join me as I speak with experts about our most threatened bird species, why these species are at risk, and what conservation actions are being taken. And finally, what we can all do to help. Welcome to another episode of The Warblers podcast. This is a Wake-Up Call episode. For our newer listeners, this is a special series where we learn about species at risk in Canada. Each episode features a different species, some you'll have heard of, while others are pretty obscure. But in all cases, their populations are low, often declining, and as a result, there's really interesting conservation work occurring for these birds. Today we're learning about the roseate tern, which will likely land on the lesser-known end of the scale for most of us, myself included, These birds spend much of their lives far, far away from humans, yet many of the threats and challenges they face are closely linked to human activities. So our guest today is Julie McKnight, joining us from Halifax. She's a species at risk recovery biologist with the Canadian Wildlife Service of Environment and Climate Change Canada. She primarily works with species experts to develop recovery programs for our most at risk species, focused primarily on the Atlantic region. Julie also co-chairs the Canadian Roseate Turn recovery team, which of course makes her the perfect guest for today's bird, the Roseate Turn. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. Now, before we begin, I want to quickly go over what a turn is for folks, because I think a lot of people will be familiar with this group of bird, but might not realize it. So terns are in the same family as gulls. You can kind of picture them in a lot of the same habitats, you know, beaches, coastal areas, and they even look kind of similar to each other. A lot of terns and gulls will both have the white underparts and then kind of a mix of black or gray plumage on their backs or wings. But terns are a little more slender, and I like to think of them as a (laughs) torpedo-like, even. So that's the best way to spot them, I think, when you're out on a fishing boat or you're walking along a shoreline you'll see these birds that are kind of hunting above the water they'll hover briefly and then they'll dive bomb they'll plummet straight down to the water crash into the surface to try and catch fish super dramatic way more impressive than anything the gulls are doing in in my opinion <laughs> and that uh, that's such an iconic behavior of a tern but of course, we're here today to talk about the roseate tern. So Julie, if you could fill us in a little bit more about the mysterious roseate tern and why they're so spectacular and, and wonderful.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so roseates are super fine, super graceful, and they have this pristine white plumage. They have long tail streamers, white, um, at least in the breeding plumage, and in the right light if you're in the perfect light, you can catch a glimpse of this gentle pink blush they have on their chest, I guess where the rosy comes from. They've got a black cap and a full or nearly full black bill. So there, and there could be like a little pinch of red that sort of sneaks into the base of that black bill.
0: Mm -hmm. And so where, where are they found? Where might our listeners see one? Yeah,
1: so in Canada, the primary colony is North Brother Island. It's a provincial wildlife management area, and we work really closely with the province to manage that site. The island is restricted during the breeding season, so you can only go there if you have a permit from the province or if you tag along with one of us that does. So you can't even get to the island to see them. But one of the best places you might be able to see them is at one of their key foraging sites, in southwest. It's called Dennis Point Wharf. It's a working wharf. It's in lower west Pubnico. It's a vibrant fishing wharf where um, these small herrings, so first and second year herring, congregate at certain times in June and July. And you might be able to see a rosea tern diving off the wharf
0: to fish. Right. And where do they go when they're not breeding?
1: Yeah. So once they leave here, they kind of they hop down to the greater cape cod area and they can some birds can stay there for up to a month really before they're heading further south so they stay there it's called we we call it a staging area they'll hang out there basically and get ready for the next jump so they're you know the parents are feeding their chicks still and teaching them how to how to fish and they're resting and just getting ready and then they make the next big jump and we think they probably follow the coast down along through the Caribbean and into um, South America, and then they pretty much end up in northeast Brazil. And they there's just a few, a handful of sites really that they hang out over the winter. And they're doing the same thing; they're out fishing most of the day, and then they'll come into the um, to the beaches or sandbars and hang
0: out and sleep. It's an incredibly large range. Yeah, they go um, a long way. Mm-hmm. I kind of like to think of them as a fancy bird because, you know, they've got that rosy breast. They're pretty charming looking terns. And then Cape Cod is kind of like a, a fancy vacation spot in the States that they stop over in. And then they head down to the coastal shores of Brazil, right? Like that's it's kind of a fancy turn. Yeah, they've got just the best life for sure. So before we turn into some of the Heavier stuff about their threats and conservation efforts. I'm wondering if you have a favorite fact about Roseate Turns or maybe a, a favorite story from working with them.
1: Oh gosh, there's so many stories. Um, I think one of the feel good stories I have it uh, it's something that happened in 2018. Um, at the time, the colony that we have in the southwest on North Brother Island. It did actually abandon that island um, due to very high predation levels the year before by American crows and then some gulls got involved. And mm-hmm. pretty much the entire colony relocated to a new island called Gull Island. It's about eight kilometers away. They didn't go too far, but Gull Island, um, we'd never managed that island before. And so Normally, we do a really good cleanup before the turns arrive. And so we take off all the debris and rope and anything that could be dangerous to them. And Gull Island is quite a large island. We weren't, we just, we weren't expecting them to be there in numbers, and we, hadn't, you know, we just didn't know. And so that island has a ton of debris on it. It's a lot of lobster traps. They've washed up, you know, over the winter, and they're just kind of strewn around the entire island. In some places they are really embedded in the cobble. Um, and so we were out there in early June, so that's around the time when they should be nesting. And we were finding some nests, and but just early. It was very early, just a few eggs down, really. And as we were walking through what ended up forming as the colony site, I just out of the corner of my eye, I'd seen some kind of movement that just seemed off because the birds had already, you know, when we walk through the colony, the birds take off, they'll leave because they don't like disturbance. And so I'd seen this, just it was a movement, it just caught my eye. And um, so I, Walk towards it, and it was an adult roseate caught in a lobster trap, oh. like in the netting within the trap. And so, roseates are really vulnerable to debris like that because they really like to nest under things.
0: Mm. So, under
1: plywood that's been washed up under lobster traps. And so, um, I kind of got down really close and just um, reached my hands in, and, and I was able to take him out very cautiously. I had a good look at him, he had a little. You know, some minor abrasions, but nothing that made me worried. He looked like he'd be totally fine, and so we let him go. Mm-hmm. That bird did have a band, um, and we know that he was fine because he ended up nesting that season in a different location. Stood well, you know, he stayed pretty clear of the trap after that, mm-hmm. and um, we just saw him last year, so he's oh. still around, still part of the colony, and so. It's just an, it's just one of those moments where we got lucky, he got mm-hmm. lucky, and if we hadn't shown up that day, if the weather had been bad, if we couldn't have landed on the island, he might have died, yeah, and so it um it's one of the things i I look back and think you know these these birds do need help because we've done some damage to them
0: for sure, um it's kind of interesting that they like to nest under things so of course that's dangerous if there's hazards like lobster traps washed up on the beach is it can that also be beneficial though for conservation like would you be able to make um sort of like a a nest box or something that they would nest under to prevent predation risk
1: absolutely so um the birds are are quite easy to work with in that way and we know that shelters so we put out a a nest shelter, and we do lots of different designs trying to figure out what they like the best. But here in Canada, we mostly use plywood shelters. They're just like a little box with a very small opening, and they go in and they lay their eggs within. It keeps predators away from them. It keeps um, the weather off of them, like too much sun, um, heavy rainstorms, heavy wind, that sort of thing that protects them from that. And it also, you know, where our birds are nesting. Rosie, it's always nest with other terns. They like the company, but sometimes company can be um, not so welcome. You know, they um, they fight they mm-hmm. fight at each other. They'll pick at each other if they're too close. Mm-hmm. And so keeping, you know, having the roseates go into their shelter, it keeps them away from all of that disturbance. It keeps their chicks contained so that the parents can um, keep a better eye on them sort of thing. So we think overall the shelters um, help in in their conservation.
0: Yeah, kind of an interesting um, dynamic with their their nest choices and the habitats they like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so like on a, on a natural island, before we would put out shelters for them, they would nest under certain um species. So like Angelica, which creates this beautiful almost umbrella like shelter for them, or, you know, washed up things, or Mm -hmm. even beside rocks. So that year that they nested on on um Gull Island, we didn't have shelters out for them um, in the first year. And they would it's funny because you could really tell where the roseates are and they're always kind of shinied up beside a big rock or under debris or something. And it, uh, they definitely look for that. They seek that out. Even if we don't give them shelters, they're looking for something.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaks to how important it is to get out there and clear out anything that could be dangerous because they're going to try to nestle in underneath it. Yeah, exactly. So could you talk about um, their connection to the ocean a little bit and some of the bigger threats to their population?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the ocean isn't a scenic backdrop for these birds. They're really tied To the ocean, and it's their lifeline. It shapes their daily lives, where they choose to nest. um, It's tied to where they can eat. And you mentioned earlier they they eat they fish. And so, the team on North Brother Island has shown recently that the birds that are nesting on North Brother Island are really only fishing at two spots. And we think that we might actually be seeing an impact of climate change on the birds and where they're. Where they're feeding. And so, you know, they're shallow plunge divers. They don't really dive very deep. They're really, they really need the fish to come up to them in the shallow, like in that upper part of the water. And so, as the surface waters are heating up, like we saw this summer, the fish are likely moving deeper and to the cooler water. They're staying down. And so, if you don't have a place where, you know, you have like eddies or ripples or whatever that's pushing or predatory fish, Things that are pushing up the smaller fish that these terns eat, it's a struggle for them to get food. And of course, they are feeding their young when they're here. So it's just a really important time for them.
0: I never would have thought of that kind of, you know, I mean, with climate change, there's all kinds of impacts. But just the way it's affecting the fish yeah, and how that is in turn affecting the terns. Sorry for that pun. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we get uh, that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> so, climate change is really the big threat, right?
1: It's one of the really big threats. Um, one of our, you know, one of the things that really is concerning me right now is that we in Canada, we have three quarters of the roseate term population on one very tiny island. It's a North Brother Island off of Lower West Pubnico. It's, a, it's just the tiniest islands. Like, the size of a city lot, very very small, wow. and we have um, you know fifty or sixty pair of roseates on that, up to a thousand pair of other turns on that. So you can just imagine the density. They're they're really like build a bill in some cases. They're in there tight. And this island is eroding and it's getting smaller as we go. It's just you know a couple of bad winter storms away from disappearing. And so where are they going to go? We don't. We don't really have a great handle on where they can go if that island disappears. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big concern. And then these birds, I think I mentioned it earlier, they are kind of fragile. They're facing significant challenges even today. They've got this really small population size. We've only got, I think, we're about 80 pair in Canada right now. And they're concentrated at just a few key sites. And that really increases the risk that we could lose them from Canada. We had a great horned owl um, hunting at North Brother Island back in 2008, and that one bird took 11 adult roseate turns. That was something like 10% of the colony at the time. Just a significant challenge for these birds, predators that come to the island that attack adults. So great horned owls and American mink have been really um, awful predation events in our past. And then there are other predators, the aerial predators like gulls, crows that take eggs and take chicks and really uh, drive down the productivity for the year.
0: That's really tough. I know, um, you know, just working with piping plovers, we have a lot of the same issues with avian predators and they are, they're not easy to work with. That's, it's a huge challenge.
1: Yeah. And with plovers, they're kind of spread out for the most part. You know, you have a couple of pair at a beach here or there, but with rosy, it's they're all at one place, or as we know in Canada, they're at three places. And so if you get an adult predator coming to the site, it's, you know, it's, it's an emergency. We have to move pretty quickly. So with the great horned owl, we actually worked with the province of Nova Scotia, the wildlife division. They um, developed a, a trap for us. It's like a soft catch release trap for the owl, and we put it on well, It's like a pole trap. So we put it out on the pole and we trapped for five nights and owls are tricky. They don't come every night. But when they mm-hmm. do, they create a ton of havoc. And just knowing the way that the owl works, we uh, we were able to trap it out and relocate mm-hmm. it to a place far from Rosia Terns. So that worked. But there have been other cases where we've had American mink come to the colony. And they can... American mink are really hard to deal with because they can surplus kill. So they can kill 100 turns in a couple of nights. And so... If you don't catch them quickly, they can just, you know, kill off all the birds in one colony if it's mm-hmm. small enough.
0: Because I, I imagine you're not out at the colonies on a regular basis, right? Like the, you must, you can't be out there every day.
1: Well, yeah, that's true for North Brother Island. It's a, you know, just a tiny, tiny site. And so we can't even spend a lot of time there. We go um, for a few hours. We have blinds out there. So we give the birds a break from our presence. But the island is just too small for us to stay because it just causes so much disturbance. But then on Country Island, which is managed directly managed by the Canadian Wildlife Service, we have a crew that stay out there. That island is is, um, managed by Jen Rock. She works with the Canadian Wildlife Service. And so she has a team out there who are able to live on the island and they can go into the colony as they need to. Of course, we have rules about when you can go in the colony and Mm -hmm. like, you know, it has to be a certain temperature. Or the wind has to be a certain degree, and and uh, and no wet vegetation. It's all to protect the birds.
0: I can kind of picture what it might be like going into a tern colony. That's got to be chaos. Could you describe it a little bit for folks?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Chaos is the perfect word for it. Honestly, <laughs> it is. Um, it can be really overwhelming. It is so loud and. So much vibrancy and so much movement so going to North Brother Island we take we take small zodiacs out and uh, as you're <laughs> it's a little chaotic just even getting out of the boat because you're landing on these large cobble boulders and so um, you jump out and you pull up your boat so it doesn't you know disappear from you and we pull it up onto the bank and it's quite a steep climb to get up to the ring it's they all nest, all the turns nest on this cobble ring, basically. And so we kind of um, pick our way up the incline, trying to keep ourselves down so that we're out of the sight of most of the turns. And then the noise is just, it can be super deafening. They know you're coming and they are, um, they are not quiet about, about your disturbance. And then We'll put ourselves in our blinds, or so we have chair blinds that we can sit in, just single chair blinds, and we also have a larger blind that can have two people. So, once we squirrel our way ourselves away into those blinds, they start to settle and get used to our presence, and um, and then you can kind of figure out who you're watching today, and and uh, and really settle in and and take it all in. But it's very loud and um, messy they you know when you have a thousand pair of turns above you they are they're messy birds so you yeah you have to um the researchers that go you have to be okay with that like you could get struck turns there's generally a handful that are the aggressive ones and they're almost always common turns but they will strike at you they'll flutter down on you and hit you in the head or wherever they can there's been some blood spilt on the island
0: oh i believe it you almost want a hard hat
1: (laughs) yeah so we we actually have um i guess a policy not to wear anything hard because some of the turns uh you can actually bend their bills if they strike you too hard so we um tend to use flags or like we use these um garden stakes we repurpose them as nest stakes and so you can tuck them in your hat and the turn it's they will strike the tallest thing so if you're bending over Mm -hmm. it's going to be your back but if you're standing up it's your head so if you put a flag or something up on on the top of your hat they will strike that instead of you
0: well that's a clever little workaround.
1: Yes. And some, some of the islands, our colleagues in the States wear very funky hats. And there's one island, I've seen some pictures where they wear straw hats and sunflowers and they put different Mm -hmm. things in just to um, get the turns to
0: strike something other than them. Gosh, the life of a biologist. (laughs) Exactly. So you've already touched a fair bit on, on some of the conservation work that you're involved in. Is there anything else that you, you really focus in on for these birds?
1: Uh, we are banding these birds. We band them with uh, plastic field-readable bands, so they're um, color bands that we can just go in and have a look. So we're always doing reciting when we go to the island. We're trying to figure out who comes back, um, what the survival rates are for these for these birds, and then if they're recruiting into another colony. So the year on North Brother that um, the island was abandoned that was in twenty seventeen that year. And the following year too, we know from colleagues in the States that quite a few of our birds actually recruited into their colonies down in Maine and in New York. And that's all, it's the young ones. So roseates take two to three years to come back to recruit into the breeding population. And those two years, we had more birds recruit into the U.S. population than into our population. So we lost a few birds. You know, it's a meta population. So the birds are always going to be moving, and it's moving between colonies. And it's generally those young ones, those are the ones that move to a new colony and recruit and find somebody down there to mate with.
0: That's interesting. Do they kind of pair up for life once they find a mate, or is it different every year?
1: Well, no, it's, it might not be different every year. We think we actually don't have that much indication in Canada that of repeat years where they keep the same mate. But I have colleagues in the States that have certainly have documented that. So um, a number of years with the same mate. I can't say that we've seen that up here.
0: I suppose it must be pretty challenging to study with so much going on on those nesting islands.
1: Well, I think because they do have these very specific places along their migration route, and then their wintering grounds, I think it probably does happen more often than we're able to record it. We don't have every bird banded, so we don't always know. But we, um, through some of the work one of my colleagues has done in the States, they've been able to show birds actually pairing up on the trek north. So they're in the Caribbean and, you know, flying through the Caribbean or even in northern South America. And the pairs, like they seem to be traveling together. And so, Who knows, maybe they're finding each other on the wintering grounds or during migration and and they have whatever they have as a conversation and and end up on the colony together and and make a go of it.
0: That's actually very, very cool because it's not that typical that birds would be doing that. So what is the main lesson? If you could pull one out that this species is teaching us about how we do conservation and how we relate to wildlife.
1: I think roseates do offer us a valuable lesson in conservation. I think they highlight, at least for some species, the need for active targeted management to secure survival. Um, They've had some historical threats. So in the early 1900s, late 1800s, they were highly prized for their feathers. As you know, they have the most beautiful feathers. And roseates have, they had enough resilience that they overcame that. We, We didn't lose them. They weren't They weren't extirpated at that time, but they still face a lot of challenges. And yet, with a little bit of help from us, so protecting their habitats, providing shelters for them, managing predators, it's just a small amount of help that they can succeed. But they're not the kind of endangered species that you can just protect their habitat and walk away and they'll be fine. It's not enough.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the threats are so much larger scale.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's because because they are so um, concentrated. at their, it, it just increases their vulnerability, right? And so roseates and species like roseates, they really remind us that conservation is an active commitment. It requires effort and care, you know, and it also requires this species in particular really requires us to be adaptive. And so things like in the last couple of years, we've through through some connections in Brazil, we've identified a spot where the roseates, as they come in from feeding all day and out in the ocean, they come in to rest at night on these sandbars. And in this one particular place, they're hitting a power line that goes across a beach. And quite a number of roseates have been maimed either killed or damaged beyond repair and so you know this is something that we hadn't even you know was, wasn't on our radar until mm-hmm. our partners get in touch with us and and now they are actively working with company with the power company and, and the communities to mark the lines and monitor and try to figure that out and then so that's like on the on the wintering grounds but even here in canada and in the United States, um, avian influenza has started to rear its ugly head. We've been really lucky that it hasn't it hasn't shown up at any of the any any of our active colonies. But it's really like it could happen at any moment. The turn colonies in the UK have have really seen. Just a disaster year with avian influenza, and we need to stay vigilant. We have to keep our eyes on these sites and make sure that the birds are doing okay.
0: Yeah, it's an awful lot to think about and worry about there. Um, but so interesting to hear about the the value of that international collaboration, right? Like these birds are, you know, there's only so much we can do here on the breeding grounds, and then they're gone for so much of the year. So it's so important to work with other partners and other countries.
1: Yeah, that is so true. We you know, we, we often call them our birds, but they're not our birds. Mm-hmm. They're here for two, yeah. two and a half months. And this is a you know, obviously for us to have roseates, they have to breed. So this is a very important part of their life cycle. But then they leave here, they end up in Cape Cod and they're there for a month, and then they leave there and they're you know, they eventually end up in Brazil and, and they spend a significant amount of, of time in Brazil. And what they're facing there, we're just really um, figuring all of that out right now.
0: So for listeners who might want to help out the roseate tern, do you have any actions that they could get into or things they could learn about?
1: Roseates are definitely one of the harder species at risk for the public to interact with. They're secretive by nature. They choose sites far away from people, and they do that on purpose. There are a couple of ways that people can, can help them out. Obviously, if you're someone who has access to a boat and you live on the coast, avoiding nesting islands during the breeding season, so from May until July. And then in southern Nova Scotia, the Roseates, when they leave North Brother Island, the adults will go off with their chicks. Their chicks are flying at this point, And they're not quite ready to head south. They're hanging out, basically, before they make that hop. And the parents will sometimes park... Rosie, it's their chicks at uh, at local beaches, and then they'll go off and forage. So go off to fish out and sea. And so the chicks are just kind of hanging out on the beach. It's a really important time that people, if they're on the beach, the beachgoers, their dogs, if they can give those birds a lot of space and just not disturb them, because every time they fly, it takes energy. But even worse than that, it's that if the chicks get moved too far from where their parents left them there's a real danger that their parents won't be able to find them again Mm -hmm. and so that's for listeners in Nova scotia but anybody who is in cape cod that goes it goes for them too they're way more rosy it's down there we're way more common turns and so they you know they're at that point they kind of become a beach bird and like we say for all of our beach birds just give them room and give them space and don't bug them And then I guess one of the other things in our neck of the woods, there are a number of groups in the last couple of years who are are really putting a lot of effort into cleaning beaches, cleaning islands for ghost gear and other debris, other marine debris that just washes up on these islands. And those initiatives are just so important. And the groups that that we're aware of, they all know when, you know, when the right time to clean a beach is, when the right time to go on an island is and where to go and where not to go so that there's no disturbance to the birds or very little disturbance. And so working with that sort of initiative, there are different groups, you can find them um, in Nova Scotia that, that are actively cleaning these sites. And that's something that they could get involved with for sure.
0: Yeah, those are actually two really, really great suggestions. So the one just giving shorebirds space, letting them roost, letting them rest, that's helpful for roseate terns. It's going to be helpful for so many other species that are breeding or migrating through Canada. And then helping out with those garbage pickups, contacting local conservation organizations, volunteer groups, you know, checking out what's available in your area and getting out and and helping out getting your hands and boots on the ground. That's that sounds really good.
1: Absolutely. And then for any of your listeners who are amazing photographers and have the big zoom lens, like a 500 millimeter lens, um, we are always really interested in seeing pictures of our birds where they are, especially if they're banded. And like I mentioned, they, we have been in Canada putting on these little plastic field readable bands. So they have a a code, an alphanumeric code on them. And so being able to know what leg that band is on, what the code is, if you can get it, what color it is, that's all really helpful in knowing um, where our birds are, where they end up and and how they're doing.
0: Yeah. So reporting roseate turns sharing the photos if you've got them, but if you don't, sharing the uh, banding info is really useful. So you'd be looking for the location you saw that bird and the time of year, right?
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. And where would folks send that information?
1: Well, eBird is a really great place for photos. And then there is a website that um, people can en- enter their data. to a Report-A-Band.
0: Perfect. We'll link that in the show notes as well. So we've got some really excellent tips there for how you can help it turns. I love the pointer to you know send in photos on eBird and and share the band sightings. That's really really great. Uh, thank you so much, Julie, for coming on the podcast and sharing a love for this really cool species.
1: Well, thanks for having me. This is it was fun.
0: The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. Visit birdscanada.org slash podcast to make a donation today. The Warblers is produced by Jody Allaire, Kate Dogleish. Chris Koo and Andrea Gress with music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nicol. Until next time, keep birding.